The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke This is a Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Please visit calcedon.edu to download this book and many others. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. My name is Shelby Luke and I will be reading from Roots of Reconstruction by Russus John Rushdeny. Taxation. Calcedon Position Paper Number 21. One of the most prevalent of myths is that vast properties across the land escape taxation because they are church-owned. The tales are endlessly repeated as fact. Church-owned businesses, farms, and properties, which by subterfuge are removed from the tax rolls. As one critic of tax exemption for churches said ominously a few days ago, quote, Nobody knows just how extensive this kind of thing is, unquote. The fact is that any and every business activity, whether privately, corporately, or church-owned, is taxed and the taxmen are eager always to ferret out and tax new sources of revenue. If any such activity is untaxed, we can be sure of this. It is, like Jim Jones' People's Church, a tacitly established, quote, church, unquote, receiving state or federal funds and serving some status purpose. It is not true of legitimate churches. There are, of course, vast, untaxed lands as much as 90% in at least one western state. These lands are often exploited. In at least one state, one of the country's most powerful publishers long had, and may still have, very extensive grazing rights therein, while owning very little land himself. He is thus a cattle baron at minimal cost. Small ranchers get no such preferential treatment. These vast, untaxed lands are federal and state lands. The myth holds that only such lands as the civil government holds can be protected from exploitation and abuse. The fact is that the much-abused lumber, quote, barons, unquote, take far better care of the forest they own than do the federal or state governments. If they did not, they would soon be out of business. By what right is the state entitled to hold vast properties and to hold them tax-exempt? The answer to this question is a religious one. We are told, quote, the state is sovereign, unquote. In example, the state is Lord. Who made the state into a god or lord and gave it the right to place sovereign over man? According to scripture, quote, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world, and they that dwell therein, unquote. Psalms 24.1, Exodus 9.29, Job 4.1, Psalms 50.12, 1 Corinthians 10.26, etc. On this fact rests God's right to govern, to legislate, and to tax. The sovereign or Lord is the source of government, law, and taxation. 
The prophecy concerning Christ was that, quote, the government shall be upon his shoulder, unquote, Isaiah 9, 6. And the most common title applied to Jesus in the New Testament is Lord or Sovereign. The tithe is simply the confession that the Lord is indeed our Lord. The state in Scripture is allowed only the head tax and no more. Exodus thirty eleven through 16 See Arthur J. Zuckerman, A Jewish Princedom in Feudal France, 768-900, Columbia University Press, 1972, for a later history of this tax. To refuse to tithe is to deny Christ's lordship, government, and law. For this reason, the early church refused to pay taxes to Rome or any other power or to allow any licensure regulation, or control. The church, as Christ's realm, cannot allow any other power to claim the right of legislation, taxation, and government over it. To do so is to deny the Lord. For this reason, too, as the church gained freedom from persecution, it encouraged the accumulation of land and properties for Christ's kingdom. This included also the subjugation and development of new areas. The amount of land held by church agencies in the medieval era is commonly and greatly exaggerated. Humanistic propaganda colors our picture of these properties and greatly distorts it. The fact is that these properties were governing agencies. Their receipts or production provided for the care of the poor, for health services and hospitals, and for education. All the basic social services were thus cared for. When Henry VIII seized church properties and gave some of them to his henchmen and used the rest to fatten the crown, one immediate result was a social crisis. There was no longer any agency to care for the basic needs of society. Some years later, Thomas Lever, in his St. Paul's Sermons, 1550, dealt with the problem. The rich had become richer, and the poor had become destitute because of the impropriations of church properties. Here was a strong Puritan attack on the impropriations and a remedy proposed shortly. A great outpouring of funds to set up foundations and charities to revive what Henry VIII had ended soon followed. Quite naturally, the Tudor monarchs, with their claims to be sovereign, heads of the church, and with the divine rights, were militantly hostile to this revival of, quote, medievalism, unquote. The Puritans, they felt, had to be suppressed. No accurate history of the Puritans can omit the appropriations issue. By 1660, however, both the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation had been defeated and controlled by the monarchs of Europe. The monarchs could resume the course of pagan statism, of the various medieval monarchs, and of the Holy Roman Empire. In example, the assertion of state sovereignty or lordship. With Hegel, the state was plainly defined as God walking on earth. The present and working God of society had become the state. The God of Scripture was exiled to heaven. The government, said the modern state, is upon our shoulders. Sovereignty is the prerogative of the state. The state alone is Lord, and hence the taxing, governing, and lawmaking power. In terms of this lordship, the state said, the earth is the state's, and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Earlier, the papacy had, in Christ's name, rightly or wrongly, divided the newly discovered American continents among the nations. Now the nations claimed the earth for themselves. Previously, it had been church lands that were tax-exempt. Now those lands were steadily limited, and state lands gained the privileges of lordship. There was a very grave difference, however. Church lands paid no taxes, but they provided a vast variety of social services. The lands were productive, and they were usually productively used. These, together with tithes and offerings, 
provided a growing and important government for Christ's people. True, there were abuses, but these were pale compared to current status abuses. When Henry VIII seized church properties, he justified it by indicting relics and by charges of immorality leveled against the monks, more than a little of it invented. Not even Henry VIII could deny the validity of their charitable works and ministries. The states, having seized the church lands and the whole earth, ostensibly for the general welfare, made no such use of these properties except as national or state parks. Instead, it turned on the people to tax them with ever-increasing taxes to take care of needs once provided for by the tithe and by church lands. Today, taxation has become expropriation, and the greedy power state owning most of the earth hurls charges of special privilege against the meager church properties, almost exclusively limited now to churches and schools. To add insult to injury, the claim is now openly and loudly made that tax exemption is a subsidy from the state. Nothing could be more flagrant and blasphemous lie. The conflict with Rome by the early church was over this issue. Who is Lord? Christ or Caesar? If Christ is the Lord, he cannot pay taxes to or be controlled by Caesar. The church fought for and gained exemption from taxation as a parakoyum, a foreign power, an embassy of the King of Kings. Christians are ambassadors of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20, Ephesians 6.20. Our English words, parish and parochial, come from parakoya. The church fought for and gained exemption from taxation as a parochia a foreign power, an embassy of the King of Kings. Christians are ambassadors of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20, Ephesians 6.20. Our English words parish and parochial come from parochia. The church is an embassy whose duty it is to conquer the whole world and to make all nations, peoples, tribes, tongues, vocations, and areas of life aspects of Christ parish. The embassy is under God's sovereignty law, and taxation. The early church, as a part of its mission, took in the abandoned babies of the pagans. If a woman could not in those days abort her baby successfully, she had it abandoned at birth. In Rome, the babies were abandoned under the bridges, where wild dogs could speedily dispose of them. The Christians collected these abandoned babies, passed them around among church members, and reared them in the faith as a step in the Christian conquest. Another aspect of the early church's mission was the care of the sick, aged, and needy in its own midst, and, as far as possible, among their pagan neighbors. These ministries were resented by Rome, which regarded them rightly as a form of government. Rome saw the early church as a revolutionary and tax-dodging organization. Tax dodging is, in the eyes of the state, a most serious offense. Money is the lifeblood of the state, and to threaten the state's source of taxes is to threaten its life. Everything was done to defame these, quote, tax dodgers, unquote. They were called cannibals and sacrificers of human beings. The communion service, the slander held, involved eating the flesh of the babies the Christians rescued and drinking their blood. They were accused of the sexual crimes which actually marked the Romans. The Christians obviously loved one another, and the Romans could not disassociate love from lust. And they hence concluded that sexual rights marked the life of the church. On and on the defamation went, seeking to discredit the church and its work. Today we have the same process at work. The churches, we are told, are rich and the pastors rolling in money. The fact is that in 1980, the average pay of church pastors in the United States was $10,348 a year. In 1976, federal authorities called everything below $15,000 poverty. 
14% of all pastors earn less than $6,000 and had to support themselves through other jobs. Only 5% earned more than $15,000. In the same year, truck drivers averaged $18,300, electricians $18,000, and lawyers $25,000, and dentists over $40,000. The, quote, rich, unquote, clergy is not so rich. Because many are provident and thrifty, they are mistaken for rich because they make a little go a long way. But what of the rich television and radio preachers? Penthouse, Playboy, and like publications have been outspoken in their attacks on all this, quote, wealth, unquote. Little is said, however, of the high cost of such communications and the normally very careful use of all funds received. The abusers are few, and, as compared with misuse of public funds by statist officers and agencies, a comparative rarity. Charges of financial abuse, however, are commonplace. It is the stock and trade of various statist agencies and their running dogs in the press to accuse any enemy of tax fraud, financial manipulations, and the like. It is a usually successful way of discrediting churchmen and of drying up their funds. Who wants to give to a cause charged with fraud? The modern power state is also hostile to critics in its own ranks. When Senators Edward V. Long and Joseph Montoya began investigations of the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS leaked data to the press to imply dishonesty on their part. This was enough to defeat them at the polls. Saturday Review, May 1980, Blake Fleetwood. Quote, the tax police, trampling citizens' rights, unquote. Pages 33 through 36. Congressman George Hansen had little treatment, but was able to get reelected. George Hansen and Larry Anderson to harass our people, page 27 through 35. J.A. Schnepper has given us a long chronicle of such tyranny and oppression. J.A. Schepner, Inside the IRS, Stein and Day, 1978. It is not, however, simply the IRS. It is the whole apparatus of the supposedly sovereign state. To claim sovereignty is to claim lordship, divinity, prior and ultimate right and power over all things. Although the U.S. Constitution deliberately avoided all claims to sovereignty, the modern United States claims it and seeks to exercise it. Sovereignty by the state is assumed by every bureaucrat and agency. It occurs to none of them, however, much some may claim to be Christian, that only God is sovereign. Quote, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. Unquote. Thus saith the Lord God to the modern state. To single out one agency of the federal government as the offender is to miss the point. The offender is the state in the totality of its being. The issue is coming into focus today because of federal claims to the power to determine what is or is not properly a part of the church and its ministry. An example, a Christian school a ministry to delinquent children, etc., and its claim to be granting a subsidy with the, quote, grant, unquote, of a tax-exempt status. In the first instance, for the state to claim the power to declare what is or is not a church is to claim the right to establish religion. This is a violation of the First Amendment. Prior to World War II, no such power was claimed and abuses were rare. Is it not time to examine the question as to why the entrance of the state into an area seems to lead to abuses in that area? In the second instance, a tax-exempt status is not a subsidy from the state, but a recognition by the state of its limited jurisdiction. Only if we accept the premise that the state is sovereign or Lord, God walking on earth, and that the state has total jurisdiction over every area of life and thought, 
can we call any area of exemption or abstention a subsidy or a grant? In his own day, King Canute wisely ridiculed the idea that he had total jurisdiction. He commanded the waves, which paid no attention to him. Canute thereby illustrated the limitations of his power and jurisdiction. The modern states and NASA show no such humility. We must not forget that the word Baal simply means Lord, owner. Baal worship was any and every kind of human activity and religion which acknowledged a Lord other than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The modern state is simply a modern Baal. Moloch worship was king worship. Moloch, Melech, or Milcom, meaning king. Modern statism is Baalism. Tax exemption is thus not a gift of the state. It rests on Christ's sovereignty or lordship. Moreover, the state itself must be no more than what God decrees that it should be, a diaconate or ministry of justice. Romans 13, 4 and 6 For the state to claim to be more is to claim to be God. The tax dodge allegation is thus a fraud. It rests on a false and blasphemous claim to lordship or sovereignty, and it denies the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is not to deny that tax dodging is not commonplace. It is. Every man who does not tithe to the only true Lord and God is a tax dodger and is therefore liable to far more severe penalties than the state can impose. Malachi 3, 8-12 Moreover, such tax dodgers cannot complain if the Baal state whom they worship oppresses them. People having rejected God's tax now pay 40% of their income to the state, and they cry vainly for relief, because it is relief rather than the Lord they want. 1 Samuel 8, 10-18 The very status granted to the church as a tax-exempt organization is insulting. It is classified, when exempted, as a 501c3 operation. This is a classification for a wide variety of charitable trusts. It can include a humane society and a pet cemetery, a lodge, or a local charity. The federal government claims increasingly the right to govern all these 501c3 agencies as public trust, which are to be required to conform to public policy and to use all funds, assets, and properties for the general public. The federal and state governments are steadily claiming jurisdiction over all 501c3 organizations. The assumption is that they are creatures of the state and their lives are totally under the governance of the state. The claim of Scripture is that all of life is religious because God the Lord is maker of heaven and earth and all things therein. All things are under the triune God. All things live and move and have their being in Him. Acts 17:28. And therefore all things are under His jurisdiction, His government, and law. For this reason, all life is religious. The kingdom of God cannot be reduced to meat or drink. Romans 14:17. Nor can it be reduced to purely spiritual concerns. It is total in its jurisdiction. Paul could therefore say, quote, Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 10.31 The present attitude of the statist humanist is that all of life is political and hence under the jurisdiction of the state. Supposedly, it is the state in whom we live and move and have our being. Certainly, it is the goal of the modern state to bring this to pass. The state seeks to govern our eating and drinking and to control our families, vocations, and the totality of our lives. The state holds that it is the focal point of power and intelligence in history, and therefore it must govern all things. The intellectuals, being humanists, agree and hence they seek to control the state. 
groups like the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, and others have certain common premises. First, they bypass or reject Christianity as the means to the good society. Implicitly or explicitly, they are all humanist. Second, they hold to the perfectibility of man by man. Their presuppositions are derived from the Enlightenment and from Rousseau, not from Scripture. Man's problem is not sin and the fall, but a failure in problem-solving. Third, a true world order is possible on status premises. The modern states working together can solve all of Earth's problems. This may mean a world state, or it can mean an informal interlocking by means of money and commerce. By uniting the world economically, there can be an implicit and political unity. Such a step, however, requires the prior subordination to political goals. Present-day departments of state are thus deeply involved in international politico-economic goals. Foreign loans and politically governed foreign trade become basic tools for this goal of a humanistic and statist world order. Fourth, the architects of this new order are philosopher kings and more. To Plato's dream, another element has been added, the banker and the industrialist. The student revolts of the 1960s were in part directed against this interlocking establishment of the state, the university, the banks, and industry with big labor as sometimes a very minor partner. Charles Levinson, in his thorough study, Vodka Cola, does not deal with the role of labor. The modern university, state or private, is today subsidized by the federal government and is an ally in the state's claims to and exercise of the prerogatives of sovereignty. Elitism is basic to the New World Order dream in Marxist and non-Marxist versions. There is infighting as to which of these elitists are to take priority, but all four groups tend to agree on elitism. Neither a democracy nor a republic are to their taste. The form is honored, not the substance. Lip service is paid to equality, but elitism prevails. Fifth, the facade of benevolence is maintained. Human good and human rights are the professed goals. The elite rulers bring together tax funds and large foundation funds for their use. All men thus tithe to them as the new lords of creation and the lords tithe as an agency of non-status government is never considered. The reason is obvious. The tithe creates a non-coercive, grassroots government under God. The state tax, with big foundation money, creates a status rule from the top down. Yet we are asked to believe that the church represents vast wealth which goes untaxed. The state owns more land than perhaps all the people combined, pays no taxes, grows fat off the people, and it asks us to regard the church as a rich tax evader? As we have seen, the average pay for 1980 for the American clergy was $10,348. The average pay for Christian school teachers was, and is, dramatically lower. All too many Christian school teachers can only survive if the wife teaches school also, and one or both hold summer or night jobs. The burden on these Christian schools and teachers is increased by the cost of litigation because they are now in a special target of the statist tyrants. A tyrant, let us remember, in its ancient and original meaning is anyone who rules without God. Whether or not the people like him makes no difference. A tyrant is one who rules without God, and tyranny is godless rule in any area of life. The word tyrant, Greek in origin, means, like Baal, Lord, 
or sovereign. A tyrant or a bail is some human agency or person who claims lordship or sovereignty. In our very use of the word tyrant, we witness to God. Apart from Him, all rule is evil. We live in an age of tyranny, an era in which the modern state declares, I am the Lord or sovereign, and the earth is mine and the fullness thereof. Theology has been replaced by political doctrines, which are the new theology. The gospel of humanistic statism is seen as man's hope rather than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Moses asked God for his name, he was asking God to define himself. Names in the Bible classify and define. Adam's calling to name the animals, Genesis 2:19, was a scientific task. He was asked to understand the animals in terms of God's order and to classify them. The command and the guidelines came from God, the Creator. Because God is the Creator of all things, He is the only source of all true definition and interpretation. Since God is the Creator and Definer, He Himself is beyond definition. A definition limits. It calls attention to boundaries. God declared to Moses that He was beyond definition. Quote, I am that I am, unquote. or I am he who is, Exodus 3.14. He is knowable, not by man's definition, but by self-revelation. He is, quote, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, unquote. Exodus 3.15f. All things are to be defined in terms of Him and His revelation. Now, however, newspaper stories tell us of federal efforts, quote, to define religious activity, unquote, or to define the church, and so on. All these attempts by status at definition have a common purpose. They seek, first, to make religion a creature of the state. If the state is God, then this is a most logical step and a necessary step. Otherwise, it is a dangerous and tyrannical activity. Second, the purpose of these efforts at definition are tax-oriented. The money-hungry state wants to increase its taxing power and its tax resources. A greedy and evil people assent to this. Quote, tax the rich, unquote has become a reality. But now the income and inheritance taxes hurt virtually all the people, perhaps least of all the very rich. Envy is a great weapon, used over the centuries to enslave men. If envy can be used to create laws to harm those we resent, then the same laws can be used to harm us and will be so used. Let us remember that when the 16th Amendment was under consideration, the idea that the income tax would ever be applied to any but millionaires was ridiculed as impossible in a free country. Those who today want to see the churches taxed are forging the chains and bars for their own enslavement. The death of the First Amendment is not too far distant if the present trend continues. It will also be the death of freedom. Slaves see freedom as license. Free men see freedom as responsibility. The less free Greece and Rome became, the more they granted sexual license. The fools of the day believed themselves to be free because license had been granted explicitly or implicitly to a wide variety of sexual sins. Then as now, for all too many, Freedom means the right to be irresponsible and the right to penalize, tax, and harass the responsible. Romans grumbled about the growing powers of the state, but they saw themselves as more free because sin was favored and even subsidized. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 1-8, as B.T. Viviano in Study as Worship, 
1978, has shown, argued for Christian courts and Christian judges and lawyers to handle cases involving Christians. Because Jesus Christ is Lord, Christians are to live in terms of His government and law and create courts and agencies to adjudicate and govern their problems. Through God's tax, the tithe, they are to establish God's reign in every area of life and thought. See E.A. Powell and R.J. Rushdoony, Tithing and Dominion, Ross House Books, Vallecito, California, 95251. Through their self-government under the Lord, they are to become a walking law sphere and government. The family, as God's basic institution, is fundamental to God's free society and realm. Only by the self-government of the Christian man under God and his law can the forces of the tyrant state be pushed back and overcome. Only by God's tax, the tithe, can we finance God's kingdom. Every day, in every way, we choose whom we will serve. This choice cannot be a matter of words only. It is a matter of faith and life, of action and money. You have made a choice already. Is it Christ or Caesar? May 1981 Quote, Faith without works. Unquote. James, the brother of our Lord, tells us very emphatically that, quote, Faith without works is dead. Unquote. James 2.26 I thought of this recently when I heard an older man speak of the, quote, old days, unquote, when silver dollars were the only kind of money in circulation in this area, and good men refused to take paper dollars in change. Such paper money was despised as, quote, funny money, unquote, and as likely sooner or later to lose value. This attitude was commonplace when I was a boy. Farmers, ranchers, and miners carried deep leather pouch purses in their jeans to hold, quote, decent, unquote, money, silver change, and silver dollars. Then I asked my one and only question of the old man, did you save some of those silver dollars? His answer was brief, quote, nope, sure wish I had. They're worth a lot of money these days, unquote. He went on to say that he had known all along that silver dollars were real money and paper money would, quote, belly up, unquote. But did he? I thought of him two nights later as I read James two twenty six. His, quote, faith, unquote, in silver was worthless and his paper assets are steadily depreciating. He was grumbling about how much harder it is to make ends meet financially. Scripture is right. Faith without works is dead and worthless. To say we believe in the Lord and to continue living as though the world is governed by statism, money, or evil is to profess a dead faith. Too many people who profess to believe in the Lord act as though the living God does not govern the world or that He is not both Savior and Lord. A faith with works moves in terms of Joshua 1, 2-9, in the confidence of God's word and victory. It moves out to possess the land for the Lord, in the bold confidence that His word is true when He says, quote, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Unquote. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, May 1981. Karma, Debt, and the Sabbath. Chalcedon Position Paper, number 22. The doctrine of karma is one of the most important religious doctrines invented by man. Its origins are Brahmanic, but its great development is Buddhist. Perhaps no other non-biblical doctrine is more important and more perceptive, however deadly. Karma is the law of cause and effect 
as it regulates the present and future life of man. Karma says that what a man sows, that shall he also reap. Every man inherits his own burden of sin and guilt, and no man can inherit the good or evil acts of another man. Karma holds that sin cannot be destroyed by sacrifice, penance, or repentance, but only by self-expiation. A man thus spends his life and future reincarnations, according to this doctrine, working out the atonement for sin. The important fact about karma is that this doctrine does justice to the reality of cause and effect. It recognizes the reality of sin in man and the burden which sin imposes on the present and the future. Modern humanism is unable to cope with this fact of causality and chooses to ignore it. It does not escape causality, thereby, and only compounds its problem. According to karma, the past determines the present and the future. Man's sin most surely finds him out and will not let him go. The karma faiths have no savior, but they are at least aware of the reality of sin and its demand for expiation. Their doctrines of self-atonement are ineffectual, but their realism as to man's condition make them wiser than those moderns who choose to deny causality. The doctrine of karma was current in the world of the Bible, especially the New Testament era. The Bible speaks emphatically of causality and the consequences of sin, Genesis 2:17, 3, and 7. Moses declares, quote, You have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Unquote. Numbers 32, 23. Paul warns, quote, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Unquote. Galatians 6 and 7. However, rather than an abstract world of causality, for the Bible, the cosmos is the creation of the personal God. This fact creates a vast gulf between the Bible and the doctrine of karma. But karma does stress a fact that the modern world chooses to forget, causality. It is this fact that Keynesian economists choose to forget. Keynes himself, when asked about the long-run consequences of his economics, replied, quote, in the long run, we are all dead, unquote. Because of its disregard for causality, Keynesianism creates an inflationary economy. Long-term consequences are dismissed in favor of short-term benefits. The average American and European is not familiar with Keynesianism as a body of economic thought. They are familiar with it as a way of life their own way of life. In Keynesian terms, all sin is assessed in terms of present benefits, not in terms of long-term consequences. As a result, debt living has become a way of life. From a moral liability at the beginning of the century, debt has become now an asset, and the word credit, which once meant real liability, now means the ability to contract debt. The world's monetary systems are no longer based on the gold standard, but on debt. Paper money represents debt, not wealth. The modern Keynesian world is a rejection of the triune God and His law word, which prohibits debt beyond a six-year limit, and then for necessities only, which requires covetous free living and which regards debt as a form of slavery. Between 1945 and 1980, many fortunes were built and many lost by pyramiding debt. But debt, like sin, has its consequences. Karma holds that past sins govern our present and future lives. With its concomitant doctrine of reincarnation, karma holds that thousands of generations or reincarnations may be necessary in some cases to work out the self-expiation necessary. The burden of sin and guilt is not lightly discarded 
simply because man wills it. Causality rules all things unrelentingly. This brings us to the deadly aspect of the doctrine of karma. Because of its unrelenting doctrine of causality, the past rules the present and the future. Only insofar as we have a better past, or karma, can we have a better future. The world of karma is a past-oriented world. The same is true of the world of debt. For those who are in debt, the past governs the present. The first claimant on their monthly check is the past, the house payment, and other debts have a fixed claim on their income before either they or God can touch it. One of the most common questions I encounter with respect to the tithe is this, quote, How can I tithe and still meet my payments on my debts? Unquote. The house is on quote, the never-never plan. Unquote. The car and furniture get old and shabby before they are paid for, and man's days are dominated by the past. Modern man may not believe in karma, but he has created a new world of karma in debt. The same is true in politics. Cause and effect in politics has brought the world's many nations to the raw edge of judgment. In politics, this has brought some vaguely conservative parties and administrations to power. All are looking for cosmetic solutions and avoiding the long and ugly chain of causality which has led to the present crisis. The karma of modern politics threatens them like a crumbling cliff over a cottage, and all are offering a more modest table fare as the solution. All around us a host of things have created a vast chain of causes and effects which threaten our world. Debt, the minimum wage law, statist education, and the new illiteracy, welfareism, and much, much more. The world may say, let us eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die, but God says, tomorrow the judgment. One is reminded of the cartoon picturing a sad-faced man carrying a sign on a busy street reading, quote, We are all doomed. The world will not end. Unquote. Man has no escape from his sins in any way of his own devising. When the past governs the present, it has a paralyzing effect on it. As J. Eslin Carpenter pointed out many years ago, the doctrine of karma froze society and led to the caste system. Basic to the dogma was this principle, quote, A man is born into the world that he is made, unquote. The present is read in terms of the past. Our current karma culture is also seeing a like stratification. Despite the talk of equality, the premise of welfareism and more is the incapacity of vast numbers of peoples. The ghettos of America have seen successive waves of immigrants come and go as they work their way into more advanced positions. Now we have, as a policy of state, an assumption that a permanent ghetto resident is a fact of life. Of course, because of environmentalism, we now seem to hold that a man is born into the world others made for him. The two principles of karma are, first, quote, a man is born into the world that he is made, unquote, and second, quote, the deed does not perish, unquote. In example, consequences continue until they are fully expiated. Karma cannot be destroyed, neither by fire flood, wind, or the gods. It must proceed unrelentingly and unerringly to its results. A man might briefly postpone the workings of his karma, but he could never frustrate nor destroy them. All else passes, but acts and their consequences remain. Destiny, karma, reigns and rules. The word diva is God's, and deva, derived from it, means destiny. And for the Buddhist, destiny is simply past acts. 
according to El de la Vallée Poussin, since karma includes in its unrelenting causality mental acts as well, man's waking thoughts as well as his dreams in sleep govern his life and add to his karma. Only through good acts can man expiate his past sins. And, quote, the good act has three roots, the absence of lust, of hatred, and of error, unquote, Poussin. Thus, we have a negative idea of good so that its essential function is to diminish the retribution for the vast accumulation of past acts. The very clear fact which emerges from this is that, in the world of karma, there can be passivity and withdrawal, but definitely not rest. The biblical doctrine of the Sabbath is thus unique. We are commanded to observe the Sabbath in Deuteronomy and to, quote, remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt and that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day, unquote. Deuteronomy 5.15 Redeemed man can rest because he knows that the Lord has saved him. The meaning of the cross is not that the consequences of our sin are simply overlooked, but that Jesus Christ makes full expiation for our sins. The causality is worked out on the cross. Atonement is made for our sins and we are free from the guilt and the burden of sin. Where men deny the causality of sin, they deny also the atonement, and they become antinomians. But only Christ's atonement can free man from sin and death and give him rest. The answer to the doctrine of karma is the atonement and the Sabbath rest which the atonement creates. The Sabbath law follows the Passover event and it sets forth the salvation rest of the old Israel. The Christian Sabbath follows the atonement and the resurrection the first day of the week, and it celebrates the salvation rest of the new Israel of God. The redeemed in Christ now are governed not by the past, not by their sins, nor by karma, but by the Lord, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8 They are to live righteously, to render to all their due honor, to love their neighbor as themselves, and as a normal practice to owe no man anything save to love one another. Romans 7-10 through 10. The true Sabbath enables us to rest because first it is Christ's finished work of atonement and continuing work of providence that is our life, not our deeds and past acts. Second, we can rest because we are not past bound and past oppressed and haunted. We can say with David, quote, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety, unquote. Psalms 4, 8. We have the blessedness of restful, trusting sleep. Instead of a burden, the past has become an asset in the Lord, who makes all things work together for good to them that love Him, to them who are the called according to His purpose. The converse of this is that all things work together for evil for those who hate God. Obadiah 15, Jeremiah 50, 29, Lamentations 1.22 Third, because we are now future-oriented, we become dominion men, working for godly reconstruction in every area of life and thought. Our lives are dominated not by past burdens, but by present responsibilities and the assurance of power. John 1.12 Together with Joshua and the Apostles, Matthew 28, 18-20, we have the assurance, quote, Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, 
so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Unquote. Joshua 1, 3, and 5. The sad fact today is that many church members profess Christ, but live in the world of karma. To illustrate, one church officer, an able and talented man, but a despiser of God's law, has twice been bankrupt, several times a failure in business because of lawless policies and debts, and is a sour and critical leader whose ways are oppressive to many. There is no Sabbath in his life, nor any freedom and power. He has the aura of a hunted man, and in his work is a, quote, plunger, unquote, one who prefers risk to sound practices. We have all too many pastors whose sermons or trumpets always sounding defeat and echoing with the oppressiveness of sin, not the freedom and joy of victory and redemption. Their sermons echo the death of the tomb, not the triumph of the resurrection. To all such we must say with Paul, quote, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Unquote. Ephesians 5, 14. June 1981. The Congregation of the Dead. According to Solomon, quote, The man that wandereth out of the way of understanding shall remain, or find rest, or end up in the congregation of the dead. Unquote. Proverbs 21.16 To wander out of, quote, the way of understanding, unquote, is to wander away from Jesus Christ and His every word, the whole of Scripture. It means trusting in our own understanding rather than in the Lord. Proverbs 3.5 Practically, what does this involve? When we come to the church and demand that it meet our needs and our desires rather than the Lord's, purposes we have forsaking understanding. We have them become humanist as well. We want the church to please man, not God. The great answer of John Henry Jowett, 60 or more years ago, still remains the telling one. When a foolish woman asked him what he thought about God, he answered quietly, quote, Madam, I think the question is, what does God think about me? Unquote. The important thing thus is not what we think about Christ's church, nor about God, but what the Lord thinks about us. Remember, the congregation of the dead is made up of those who lean on their own understanding. June 1981 Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushby. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love Holy, this do know He.
of his wrath. Tell the world of his love. Tell the world how Jesus Christ has set you free. Set you free. Tell the 